PhD is in education and the student needs to figure out how best they can leverage that education. And I think when we, I think one of the challenges that I have right now with the conversation about careers is the idea that there should be some sort of causation between I did a history PhD and now I run an ed tech startup. Like, no, like that's not, there is no correlation between what I do now and what I did in the history. Like I'm interested in, there's, there's a hooks about me. You know, I was interested in, you know, high level thinking, strategic thinking, problem solving, people's telling people stories and mentoring. And that's what I liked about history. And that's what I like about what I do now. But that's not necessarily that my history degree prepared me to do this thing. Welcome to Helium Podcasts. I'm Matt Hotze. That was Marin Wood, part of the dynamic duo at Beyond the Professoriate with Jen Polk. She's talking about an open secret. Most PhDs will not follow the traditional track to professor and tenure. In episode 14, we dove in deep with them to talk about this more plainly. So Christine, I had a question. After listening back to today's episode a few times, I was thinking about back to our days in graduate school and how much we heard about non-academic careers or even alt-academic careers. What was your recollection of that? When I really think about it, I always had to actively seek out my own advice, honestly, and really pull on my own network of industry or government context to get any visibility to options beyond academia. I mean, the role models in academia are surprise people in academia. So it's not as if I think people are trying to keep that information from us. But if I think, like you said, back to our experience, unless a person is aware of their blind spot and specifically hungry for knowledge about other options, I do not think it's very often built into graduate training. But um, our guests for this conversation, like you mentioned, are really addressing this gap, don't you think, Matt? They suggested some ways that professors and departments can help all of their students more effectively. My biggest takeaway was the idea of discussing with students the reality of their careers early and often, not in the frame that I heard so much in grad school, which is some of us are going to win the professor game and some of us are going to lose the professor game, but rather in the frame of all of us are going to go on in the future to create a big impact for the world. For you, Christine, what were some of the other big ideas that were key? Well, I really think this conversation highlights how much more is needed to be done on the part of institutions and on the part of mentors to prepare grad students for the widest possible range of opportunities. So I think this episode will be especially useful for mentors in thinking about how to best guide their grad students, um, how to bring in perspectives they themselves don't have experience with necessarily, or for postdocs or grad students looking to understand options beyond academia so that whatever path people choose, they choose the one that best matches what impact they want to make, not the path of least resistance or least confusion. So I say, let's get into it. All right. We're welcoming to the podcast today, Marin Wood and Jen Polk from Beyond the Professoriate. Sorry, I had trouble spitting that out, but welcome uh, to you both today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are so glad you're here to um, talk about what you're doing. And I wonder if you could just kind of each take a turn talking about your backgrounds and sort of the whys behind what you're doing today. Uh, sure. So I'll start. So this is Jen speaking. Well, let's see what I do now. So Marin and I work very closely. Uh, we have a business beyond prof, uh, as Matt said, and uh, we do that full time. And we've been working together since 
really late 2013, but our first venture together was in May 2014. We did our first uh, online career conference for PhDs. And uh, so, you know, there was some months of organization for that. But that was May 2014, and we just did our fifth annual uh, this past May 2018. Uh, and then we came together, we had our own businesses, and we came together uh, once a year to do that. Uh, and then about 18 months ago, maybe a little more than that, we decided to take Beyond Prof year-round to offer more support to folks. So uh, we have our online community. The community by Beyond the Professoriate is up and running now. And uh, we were just launching now um, a subscription service for universities called Aurora. Uh, and that is a, I mean, it's a, it's a e-learning uh, website uh, with, with a, a ton of awesome video content and uh, other educational resources for graduate students, postdocs, faculty members, staff, anyone who's interested in uh, what comes next after you do a PhD. So that's what we do now. Marin, I'll stop talking and let you <laughs> explain more in the beginning. Yeah, so um, I did my PhD in history at Carolina and actually UNC Chapel Hill. And actually, um, Jen and I met a few years ago, you know, like one or two, back when we were doing our master's degrees. Uh, we're geniuses. We finished quickly. Just kidding. Uh, so we met uh, <laughs> in 2002 doing our master's degree, but we didn't really hang out too much. We like knew of each other. We were in the same program, but we were doing different things. And then I went to Carolina to do my PhD in history, and Jen went to the University of Toronto to do her PhD in history, and we didn't keep in touch. But... Um, I graduated in 2009, and uh, for those of you that have memories, 2009 was a pretty brutal, it was the beginning of the brutal, I think would be the way to put it. Uh, there's been, uh, especially in the humanities and social sciences, but also in STEM, uh, every year seems to be another story of like the horrors of the job market, fewer and fewer opportunities. And that's not what I expected, right? I expected to be a professor. I only ever wanted to be a professor. I was preparing to be a professor. I did nothing other than academic work. And so when the job market collapsed, I was really ill-prepared to think about anything else. And, you know, universities were not offering anywhere near what they're offering now, which is still not a lot, but some programs have really stepped up over the last couple of years. So I did some adjunct work. I continued to apply for faculty positions. And then it just really became unsustainable. Like I remember sitting in my backyard in Durham, North Carolina, thinking like I had just come in second for a 4-4 teaching load at a university. It was a temporary position. And they had told me that what they were going to pay me was not going to be enough to live off of. And my partner had just gotten a job in Washington, D.C. So I was faced with a pot and I didn't even get it. Like that was the whole point. Like I came in second for this thing that was not even good. And I was remember thinking like, why am I working so hard? Like, surely there has to be something else that I can do that would bring me satisfaction. So we moved to Washington, D.C., and I floundered. I didn't know how to find a non-academic job. I didn't have any resources. Um, and so I started doing research on where history PhDs ended up. I did a, my very early tracking project. And then as I started to publish and work with the American Historical Association, I started getting contacted for people who were interested in career advice. So I began developing like a career support service just myself. And I kept seeing this Jen Polk on Twitter and social media. So I reached out to Jen, who was working, uh, she was running from PhD to life. And I pitched her this idea of like, what happens if we did this like online career conference? We'll sell tickets, we'll have people attend. And it'll be awesome. And she was like, great, sounds fun. Um, and that was the beginning of Beyond Prof. And um, it was really my motivation is that 
I was so lost and I felt so much despair and so much uncertainty when I left academia that I really wanted to provide. I, I want, I didn't want other people to have that experience because I now know that there are, there are smart people everywhere. There's lots of ways to use our skills. There's lots of ways to leverage our education. And I wanted to provide people with resources so that they too could find their way forward and find new opportunities. So when Marin contacted me about five years ago, yeah, and I was seeing L. Marin Wood <laughs> publishing in the Chronicle, and I was like, what? I, I know that person. <laughs> <laughs> so 2013, I was, so I finished my PhD in 2012, uh, so it took me a little bit. And um, I, I mean, I assumed that I was supposed to work as a prof, and that was what I was going to do. And I looked at job ads, and there was one in my field in Corvallis, Oregon, and I'm probably saying that wrong. And I, what? I, no. <laughs> and the person I ended up hiring already had three books published or something like that. Anyways, uh, my heart wasn't in it. At the end of the day, I, I felt bad about myself, but I never applied for any academic jobs. I felt bad about not applying, right? So it's crazy. <laughs> uh, but so I never ended up applying for academic jobs. And I was in, I mean, I felt very fortunate because I did have some savings. I felt like I had the ability to not worry about this too much. Uh, and what helped me, and I never, it wasn't a big plan to do this, but I ended up talking with a career coach. This is Hillary Hutchinson, who works with, uh, works with a lot of academics and unhappy academics, she calls them sometimes. And it changed my life uh, working with Hillary. Um, and that was back in the fall of 2012 when I started working with her. And I, you know, slowly over the months did informational interviews with some coaches. I wrote around lots of other things. Um, but eventually in very late May 2013, uh, I took my first coaching class. And a month later, I had my first uh, client, $10. <laughs> Uh, so that was the context of me just starting my business. And uh, I had my website and my blog at that point where I mentioned from PhD Life and starting to get into this conversation more and more heavily. And yeah, then Marin and I chatted and, uh, you know, things progressed and here we are. <laughs> yeah. That is amazing. There's so many threads to pick up on. But one of the things I love is just, to, you know, your background in, in history and studying, you know, patterns and cause and effect and humans and how all of these things kind of weave together to make us all end up where we are. And instead of coming from a standpoint of thinking about where should I end up, it sounds like you've shifted to a what, what is needed kind of a model. And you're just bringing all of that expertise to bear on, okay, well, this is a hole that I see in the process. How can we fill that need? And so just to follow up, it might be kind of a detail to, um, to follow up on. And I'm sure we'll expand this, but uh, you know, you mentioned your conferences and your annual conferences and then a bunch of different things. Who are the people attending them? So who do you find being your audience now and maybe what you see it being in the future? It's really interesting because it's, it's a bit different in depending on the offerings that we're doing. I think it's fair to say that the conference is majority graduate students, but not enormous majority graduate students. So there's always a chunk of postdocs uh, and then other folks, people that are faculty members, sometimes tenure track, uh, sometimes uh, non, sometimes part-time folks adjunct, and then folks that have jobs. And then for the community, this surprised us. 
we anticipated that our community would be they're largely grad students, that it would be a similar uh, demographic at the conference. But we have discovered that it is uh, often folks that are beyond graduate school. Uh, so they no longer have access to the resources on campus. And many folks that we interact with are longtime postdocs or longtime uh, non-tenure track faculty members of various kinds. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it, it's not shocking. Uh, we didn't anticipate it. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why we decided to launch the e-learning subscription site for institutions because we wanted to reach graduate schools, graduate students while they were in grad school through their institution to support institutions who were doing this. Um, because, uh, and also, yes, and I guess also to raise awareness about beyond the professoriate to people while they're in grad school because. The fact of the matter is like, there are lots of people who will choose to leave academia, but a lot of people, I would say flunk out, like, or they choose to leave later, or it's not really something that they've set out to do right away. And so we just don't know who's going to be successful on the academic job market. There's just limited opportunities. There's um, academic fads, you know, something will be in vogue the year you start grad school and then they'll hire everybody. And then no one wants to hire that particular area of specialization for the next 35 years. And we just don't really have a good way to map that. And so we really want to, we really believe that, uh, career exploration should happen early and often in grad school. You know, it's not up to you. Yeah. And it might, it might not be up to you, but it also might not be a good fit. Cause if we could have less happy, fewer unhappy faculty, like if people actually felt like they made a choice, if they felt empowered to decide that that was the route that they wanted to take instead of doing it by default, I think that the people who would end up at colleges in teaching and research would be better fit. So, so, uh, maybe Jen, I'll ask you this question. Are you seeing in, you know, talking about getting into the launching this e-learning platform, getting in with the graduate students, are you seeing any kind of trends across academia in terms of the career goals for graduate students? It's really interesting. I just saw um, University of Michigan Graduate School release their survey results. I, I don't know anything about methodology, but they surveyed their first year PhD students in all of the disciplines. And they've, uh, those aggregate data for arts and humanities, social sciences, life and health science, like biological and health sciences, and then engineering and physical sciences. And all the STEM folks, about 46% first year PhD students are aiming for faculty jobs, and the rest are either unsure or aren't. But in humanities, it is an arts. It is 86%, I think the number was, something really, really high who went in wanting a faculty job and zero said no. <laughs> <laughs> and then, right? So, and that doesn't surprise neither Marin or I, I think I can speak for us. And then social science, which is like 73% won faculty job, which again, there's no surprise there. Um, I suspect, I do think from other surveys, they've seen that those numbers go down a little bit, a little bit, maybe not in humanities, but in some STEM fields. But what surprised me coming from the humanities is that there was a general sense years ago when I was in graduate school that, oh, this was easy for physicists. This was easy for engineers. And of course, they're going, they just go into industry that they talk about all the time, whatever that means. And it's like not a big deal. And what I have learned is that actually a lot of folks in STEM, even in engineering programs where there is a very clear path to industry, a lot of them are really committed to working as 
faculty members. And uh, that continues as they go on and do potentially multiple postdocs. And a lot higher numbers want those faculty positions than actually will ever get them. I was going to say, I, I think it's not surprising too, like when Jen said 86% of humanities PhDs say they want to be faculty. And then when you look at the career outcomes, like you look at the AHA or you look at the 10,000 PhD project that's come up from the University of Toronto, and we have opinions about those. Uh, 80% of humanities PhDs in the 10,000 PhD project, and it's really close in the AHA, actually still work in higher ed. Like they w- they choose to stay on as contingent faculty. They move into higher education administration. And we don't actually see humanities and social science PhDs moving into industry, even with even when half of humanities PhDs won't end up in, the, in on tenure track jobs. There is still a preference for higher ed. Um, and I think that opens up different kinds of conversations and opportunities for universities who want to support humanities students than maybe necessarily the type of internship programs you would develop for STEM PhDs who are interested in industry. You know, for example, maybe there's more of an opportunity to create internship programs within universities to take advantage of grad students' interest in working and staying in higher education, whereas a program for STEM might focus much more on can we create partnerships with with and opportunities in industry to move these PhDs into spaces where they do want to be and where they will thrive. I think it's a lack of imagination on the part of humanities PhDs, but you know, you got to start where get to start where people are at and and get people moving in the right direction. One of the I mean one of the big challenges, and I, I know this for myself and you know Marin and I know this from years of talking to hundreds of people, but let me give the example of somebody we Marin recently interviewed and I've talked to him before is Adam Rubin. Uh, he works uh, with a malaria vaccine a small biotech company that uh, does malaria vaccines. And he was saying when he was doing his molecular cell biology PhD program, they didn't know anything. The graduate students didn't know anything about what other opportunities were. And he gave this anecdote. Somebody came from a big consulting firm and gave a workshop on careers in consulting. And Adam joked that like all the grad students in the department, they applied to work in that consulting firm. And it's not... Like one job. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily that they that they were like dying to work there. It's just that he said they didn't know anything else. They didn't know anything else. So I, I think that's a real opportunity to let, you know, teach grad students about what's out there. And we just saw an example of this uh, that's run by a bunch of math profs and grad students based largely at the University of Ohio, Erdos Institute, I believe it was called, E-R-D-O-S. And they're bringing in this fall a bunch of, speakers with mathematics PhDs and similar PhDs from a bunch of companies from all over the U.S. to talk to them about what's going on. Uh, And I think that's fantastic. Um, The challenge that folks in disciplines that don't necessarily translate as easily to uh, workplaces, other workplaces, uh, that's a big challenge because, you know, nobody is looking for history PhDs per se. I mean, a few. But most employers are not looking for history PhDs per se in the way that they might be looking for a physics PhD, not because of their physics expertise, but because they know they have very strong math and data science skills, for example. So it is, I mean, there is a challenge. And I was going to say, I think the challenge for STEM is a little bit different, especially if you don't want to continue, if, if what you, if what you don't want to do is continue to do bench science. I think that's where the challenge becomes. Like if you want to move into project or product management, or if you wanted to move into business, like if you actually don't want to do science 
anymore. I think that that's where we, we work with a lot of STEM people who are in that case because it becomes much more difficult um, for STEM PhDs to transition. The other people we see that have difficulty are people that do really esoteric topics, even in STEM. And so they maybe learn to work on, like they maybe focus on learning equipment that only five other people in the country. And that's super exciting from a science background, but then they're on the job market without uh, knowing the instruments that are, that are dominating the conversations in industry. And so they have to do very similar things to humanities and social science PhDs, which is really rely on their transferable skills. And we don't talk about how to do that in the academy. We don't talk about project and program management or sales or mentoring or client-facing interactions. We don't encourage people to volunteer at the science fair, which we keep hearing about as a great way to get non-academic work experience without taking in another job and really trying to find creative ways to build up leadership skills and those kinds of things. People really care about your technical knowledge and some of your transferable skills, your ability to do, as Jen said, data, writing, um, science communication, teamwork, project management, and the specifics of your dissertation are often the least interesting thing about your candidacy for a non-academic employer. I feel like what you are talking about in terms of trying to discern the difference between people who don't want a thing versus people who have never heard of that thing. You know, it's hard to uh, kind of figure out how you lay out the choices for people and the unknown unknowns are difficult to pinpoint for a person who is just in a silo and has been in a certain incentives that uh, maybe actually work against the flow of broadening their ideas. So from the point of view of people who might be listening to this who are early career, they, some people listening might be deciding what to do and really listening to what you all are saying and saying like, wow, these are different options, but some people might have landed uh, a faculty uh, position and not have the visibility for how to mentor correctly for a variety of things. So I guess my question is, do you have advice for people for how to, if they are mentors in an academic setting and they may have their own story of how they got there and they are currently academic how can they help people that are working with them? Well, let me start with uh, advice for mentors. And I'll start very generally that anyone can do. Uh, and uh, also to just quickly say, uh, Christine, we have heard all of the stories. So everything that uh, pe that people say happens, yeah. I mean, I don't know how often, but we have heard it. <laughs> um, in terms of advice for mentors, you know, at a very general level, things can make a big impact that are, I think, being curious and open-minded and and taking an active interest in not only your students as, you know, full people, not just as students in your lab or you know, working on their dissertation, but taking an interest in them as full people and making resources available. So beyond just sort of being open and curious and maybe uh, um, opening the conversation, making resources available. So there's an example one prof on Twitter gave the other day, which I thought I hadn't thought of before, which is excellent, is have the books on your shelf <laughs> that are about, you know, other things to do and point them out to people. It can be tricky, right? Because there is a tone involved in this. You don't want to imply that this is something that you're giving to your student because, you know, they're the losers. You, yeah, you don't want to imply any sort of failure. But I think open and honest conversations. Another simple thing that a lot of faculty members or departments as a whole can do uh, is 
keep track of their own alumni. And this doesn't have to be a big deal. You know, maybe you maybe you assign a grad student once a year to look people up on LinkedIn and, you know, just keep it in touch. Uh, PIs or, or um, uh, advisors, supervisors are called here in Canada. Keep track of your alumni, masters, uh, PhD alumni, where, you know, send them an email once a year, right? You never know. And those people, because, and I say this, not only because those people are going to have great information for your students and are going to know exactly where your students are coming from, uh, but networking is so crucial in multiple ways to people changing careers or getting into good jobs after a graduate program. So I feel like those are really, really small things. We could go on other small things. So I'll let Marion keep going. Recognize that it's that we're not preparing people for careers. We're educating people, even at the graduate level. And the fac- faculty members, right? Like a, a PhD is an education. And the student needs to figure out how best they can leverage that education. And I think when we I think one of the challenges that I have right now with the conversation about careers is the idea that there should be some sort of causation between I did a history PhD and now I run an ed tech startup. Like, no, like that's not, there is no correlation between what I do now and what I did in the history. Like I'm interested in, there's, there's hooks about me. You know, I was interested in, you know, high level thinking, strategic thinking, problem solving, people's telling people's stories and mentoring. And that's what I liked about history. And that's what I like about what I do now. But that's not necessarily that my history degree prepared me to do this thing or that, your alumni are doing something that's necessarily directly related to their degree. And that has to also be okay. You know, I think recognizing that it's an education that people can leverage in lots of different ways, I think is really important and approaching it that way. And even approaching these tracking projects, not as like you have a degree from our department, therefore you can go do these things. Cause we often hear that it's actually the distractions or side hustles that are paired with some other skill that's leading people to these non-academic jobs. So it's not linear. And I think it's really important to just emphasize that point. And I think emphasize that for yourself so that it's not that you have to get your students jobs. It's that you have to teach them how to leverage their education and the different places in which their education could potentially have value. And then I think I just would echo what Jen says is, Bringing in people, like it doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to have big conferences. You can have Friday seminars at noon where your alumni come in on Zoom and they talk and they answer questions. And that can be a really simple thing to do. And it can be a really cool way to go about it without having to, you know, I'm not really convinced that we need to restructure curriculum. I don't think faculty are necessarily needing to like write resumes. Um, I think that there's lots of ways that you can be supportive if instead of focusing on getting students jobs, we focus on giving them a really rich education and then empowering them to ask themselves questions, ask themselves what's best for them themselves and giving them the tools to explore career options. And I want to go back to one of the things you were saying earlier, which is I wouldn't treat students differently because once again, we don't know who's actually going to be successful in the job market. We also don't know what happens, you know, like when I started grad school, I, I went right through. I wanted to be a teacher because I'd never experienced anything else. I never spent any amount of like my dad's a farmer. My mom's a stay at home mom. Like I'd never actually been in any sort of professional environment. I got to college and I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I felt alive and I felt like I was part of the club, but I had, I didn't know professionals in any real sense. I didn't really know what the professional world was like. And so I think I was really limited and I might have actually found consulting would have been exciting or policy work would have been exciting. And so I think we don't treat students differently because they might be just defaulting because 
they were so excited to be part of the cool kids. And this is amazing, exciting. And I feel alive and connected. And this is the only place that's ever happened to me, but it's because I've never experienced it in any other environment because I've never been exposed to those environments. It's a huge fallacy that people uh, you know, have that just because you're awesome at this and energizes you, I mean, if that's the case, doesn't mean that something else wouldn't be also awesome and energize you. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I was up till midnight last night talking with my high school senior about this exact topic, about what he should try to go toward or not toward. Because it's not just because you're good at it and can't hack it that this should be what your life energy goes toward, right? So this idea, I, I can very much identify with trying to get inside the topic of saying, you know, it's what gets you in this flow state of of wanting to put your creativity there and wanting to show up to it every day. It might not be the same thing as the things that you can achieve. Mara talked about earlier about uh, like mentoring, right? And other things in graduate school. That's why she liked history. Uh, the examples I like to give are that I was always interested, and this was this was my dissertation was about people doing stuff in communities and what the heck is that about? And outside of graduate school and inside of graduate school, uh, I was involved in essentially building communities. I, you know, president of the graduate association, of student government, and you know, running the pub nights, and you know, being that kind of dork. But also, like, I had a music blog in Toronto, and I got to know lots of people in the Toronto music scene uh, and had a blog and a podcast. And, you know, so I realized as I was doing the reflection piece that actually one of the things that connected me wasn't, like, historical research, although that was cool, too. I love the archives. You know, dead people are awesome and hilarious. Uh, but I really am interested in people and communities. And that's why I love social media, right? Because I'm interested in people and communities. And that's why I love online communities. I wanted to go back to this equal treatment idea because it's not, for me, I was thinking as you were saying that also about the mentor, right? So getting equal treatment from the administration in terms of the results that they're producing, because especially in the humanities, your results, what your legacy is an academic is kind of, we were talking to somebody earlier, it's kind of this traditional view of you're the branch and you have these little leaves that are coming off of your, your branch. And I thought it was a perfect analogy. And have you seen, so then my question is, have you seen any examples of universities or institutions kind of giving equal credit to people if putting people out there in the market that, you know, they're having successful, awesome careers, but they might not necessarily be pornography historians. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, one of my things that I get annoyed about, as Mara knows, is quote-unquote placement pages. And, uh, you know, I, in some future that will not happen, I'll do a study of you know, quote, placement pages, unquote. Uh, I think they might be called different things in different disciplines, but it's where you list all of your alumni and what you're doing now. And they're very, very telling. They're very telling because a lot of those pages, especially humanities and social sciences, will only list higher track faculty members and postdocs. And come on, guys. I mean, faculty members, I think you need to decide for yourself, really, like, what what are you doing? Yeah, I think that that goes back, again, to the, for me, I think where this conversation has gone that's become so misguided is, again, trying to draw correlations between people's degrees and their careers. And 
in terms of like, so my department, UNC Chapel Hill, I'm getting emails now from the chair of the department, which is great. They've started a LinkedIn page. They don't know what to do with it. That's fine. Awesome. And so they're starting. Uh, she keeps asking, you know, the last email I got was like, Hey, we've heard from a lot of faculty, but we haven't heard from like those of you that are outside of the academy. And I think, and I haven't written her because I'm busy, but I think there's also a sense of, you know, this has to be some, some, not that my department is particularly hostile. Like, I don't think they thought of me at all in any way. And I, so I'm, I don't want to say that, but I think that the, the culture of a department has to change uh, before non-academic alumni are still going to feel connected. Like, I think the reason why they're not getting responses back is because people had crappy experiences when they left or they don't necessarily see how they're going to fit on the placement page. But in terms of like uh, academic culture, one of the things that Jen and I have been doing this summer is interviewing PhDs one-on-one. I just did one with Matt. And regardless of the discipline and regardless of if the person left 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or 10 months ago, the number one thing that they say when we say, what advice do you have for, for advisors is change your attitude. Don't make us feel like losers. Don't make us feel like failures. So I think that before we can get to the idea of like, how do we celebrate all of our alumni? I think the challenge is to make sure that all of your alumni actually feel celebrated and supported and connected. And I think that really goes back to a culture that, that is nurtured from the day that the student actually arrives in your department in which the alumni are showcased. They're brought back. We talk about non-faculty careers. We provide internship opportunities and programs. We provide funding for it, like not just to get you to the archives, but actually to get you to work with a nonprofit. You know, we do these different things that say, we want to help you learn how to leverage your education in the best way that matches for you and do that from this, from the start. And then you might start getting a shift from your alumni, um, who will start, will still feel connected to your department and feel celebrated by you. And I think it will really take senior leadership. Like, I don't mean from deans. I mean, from people whose academic legacies are so set saying, I am going to list all my PhDs on my CV and I can do that because I'm a full endowed professor and I've decided that this is what I'm doing and really be a leader, right? You got to do it. You got to take the leadership. I, I feel like that is the same as so many places where, you know, the people with the advantages from the system are the people who can be the spokespeople for how it should change. Right. And, um, and they do that by opening their ears to the people who are the opposite of them. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. You know, just to jump in the middle here, the, the awesome thing I think is that celebrating us is easy because we're out here doing all of these really cool, fascinating, fantastic things, you know, everywhere. Like that's great. Like that's awesome. Like somebody who has a history PhD is like everywhere. Like, I think that's really, really cool. I mean, imagine the reach, you know, like I think it's about ego. You can just make it about your ego, right? Like your students are everywhere doing all sorts of things. Like it's just cool. With or without the degree, maybe it's just after and that's okay too, but they're still doing awesome things. One of the things I have the pleasure to do is sit on a few different committees where people talk about exactly what you're saying is just how do we be innovative and how do we listen and how do we bring in more voices and, and meet the needs and, and kind of grow for the reality that the people that we are both investing in, but also in, in a bigger sense, how are they investing their whole lives and talent and, you know, life energy in us and how do we be responsible and ethical with that? And so, you know, the thing that I think that resonates across all your messages is just 
how do we erase the idea of a default, right? Somebody is coming to us with their whole life energy and all their possibilities. They're saying, I will have an intellectual generative life. And how do you take that contract on as an academic institution, as an advisor in a responsible way that honors that builds on it. And then also kind of to your point, Jen projects that out and talks about the successes, regardless of whether it ends up in the path that the, the advisor is on, which is uh, that part's default, their faculty, but, or if it ends up in some other way that is either another sector or fully new invention. So I, I just really celebrate what y'all are doing. And I think it's something that universities need. Well, thank you so much for talking to us for so long today. It was just a great conversation. And as usual, we feel sad that we have to end it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Interview us again. We always can talk more. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. I mean, we, it's funny because we do these interviews and then we find that there's a part two or there's a part that we should have just focused on the whole time, but you know, that's fine. We'll, we'll bring you back again sometime. Yeah, we, we like talking about this topic as you can tell. All right. Yeah. We put the re in research. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We're keeping that for sure. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thank you both for having us. You've been listening to episode 14 of helium podcast. Press that subscribe button in your podcast player and you won't miss episode 15 coming up in a couple of weeks with Professor Greg Lowry from Carnegie Mellon. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 14. The show is produced and edited by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Our music is provided by Michael Blake, who can be found at mblakemusic.com. Big thank you to him. And thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of the show. We really appreciate you. And please spread the word about Helium Podcast so we can grow and help more people that are early career researchers. Take care.